In the middle of the book of Mosiah, the prophet Mormon is abridging and telling a story. There's quite a narrative here that he is trying to tell us about a very Old Testament people with an Old Testament understanding in the middle of being taught about Christ. How he does it is amazing. He's going to first introduce uh, a story about Limhi, but then he's going to go back in time to get us how Limhi got to where he was, which was in bondage. So much of the book of Mosiah is about bondage and deliverance, and who's going to provide that deliverance to what bondage? Mormon has done a masterful job on this, and today we're going to take a look at one of the more intriguing interactions, this time between Abinadi and King Noah, to find out who's the real Moses here and what exactly are we trying to take care of. Join us today in today's podcast. And welcome to another Monday morning Book of Mormon class with Kevin Hinckley. Recorded live, we dive deeply and deliberately into this inspired scripture. How far we get in one class depends a lot on the material and the doctrines left for us by ancient prophets. A single chapter may occupy one class or many. Of course, opinions expressed by the teacher or the class members do not constitute official church doctrines. Join us in this adventure and discover the hidden treasures found within his pages. And now, on to the class. All right, well, good morning as we get rolling here. Um, one of the things that I found uh, as I was thinking about getting ready for uh, this class, Messiah is such an interesting book. Uh, and it's hard to really, until you really kind of take a close dive, you're trying to see everything that Mormon was doing in here. And it's hard to know how much of this is Mormon arranging the story and arranging the pieces on the table versus how much it, it just happened and what he was drawing from. But, but what comes jumping, one of the things that kept jumping out at me as I was reading this, I was, I was thinking about uh, uh, in, in graduate school, one of the, thing, one of the books that, that we read was uh, from Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, right? And, and uh, I think uh, most of us know that uh, Viktor Frankl was a uh, German psychiatrist uh, Jewish, who in, during World War II was taken to Auschwitz, and uh, he recorded a lot of his experiences uh, there. And 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 one of the things that came out of that experience for Frankel was the fact that he noticed he started to pay attention to who was who was surviving and who wasn't surviving, who was living and who was dying, who seemed to be doing okay under horrible circumstances and who just kind of completely fell apart. And his take on all of that was um, that those that seem to have some meaning or some purpose for getting through the horrific things that they were seeing and experiencing did better, survived longer. 
those who had no hope, no meaning, no any part of this would give up hope and they are oftentimes the first ones to die. Uh, and and so one of the things that Frankel did, which I thought was fascinating, is in little, one little corner of, of the barracks where he was staying is, he set up his little office. And people would come and visit with him in regular office hours, you know, and they would come and visit with their psychiatrist in a corner of a concentration camp barracks. But that was part of what gave him purpose. I'm, I need to survive for them. I'm providing something for them. And, and they are getting through. And part of what he was trying to get to them was a meaning to make it through. Well, I'm going to make it through to see my daughter. Or I'm going to, I promised my wife that I would hang in here. Or something. Okay. Um, and, and so there was just this sense of, well, we suffer or we're going through unfairness and pain. Do we have a, what purpose do we attach to that? Okay. So, for instance, if you go to a, if you go to a funeral and somebody, and, and you're talking to a member of the, the family and they're grieving, what kind of things are you likely to hear at an LDS funeral when we're talking to the grieving family? <laughs> huh? The plan of salvation. It's okay because there's a plan. The Lord knows what he's doing here. What else? Yeah, along with the plan, you know, life doesn't end. No. Isn't it nice that we know what we know and it goes on? We'll be back together. Right One day we'll be back together. Or I'm just picturing him being together with his, his parents. And so I, there's some happiness in that kind of thing. Yeah. The safely six feet under. This person has achieved. They have graduated. They have successfully. They've just moved on from this level and now they've graduated. They learned all that they needed to learn. So it's okay. And basically that's what we're, it's okay. There was purpose in this pain. Okay. The Lord had a plan for, the Lord just needed them more on the other side. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, don't, don't worry. If that's the case, then you really shouldn't be weeping that much because the Lord's in charge. He knows what he's doing. He has a plan on the other side. Let's go be happy. I brought potatoes. <laughs> so this also kind of correlates with how um, very old couples kind of... Like who? <laughs> Who are you talking about there, Willis? Oh, okay, you're, you and your wife, yeah. Can uh, often, yeah, because that that purpose, or sometimes that purpose is, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live to see my daughter graduate from college, or I'm going, I want to see my grandkids go on missions, or in other words, there is power in purpose. It gets us through pain and suffering, and, and we're able to survive. Yeah. But we also part of us, we're still human, and we grieve the death because yes. the human part of us. Is yes. It still has to grieve, doesn't it? I know. Right. 
Well, and this is the part that I, I wrestle with in my office. It bothers me a, a lot that on one side, yes, the purpose is there. On the other side, if we have prevented somebody from fully grieving, they carry it longer because they, they're not allowed to express it because somehow they haven't recognized the plan of salvation. I'm, you're weeping. You don't recognize how joyful it is. Stop crying. You know, you'll see them again. You're seeing their parents. You know, we're not really saying that, but we are. Yeah, lady in back. Yeah, we've done, we've grieved. Why should we grieve? It's a joyful plan. It's the plan of salvation. It's the plan of happiness. They've just moved on to the next fear. No, no, it's, it's, in the, it's actually in the scriptures. I can't remember where it is. It says that we should live together in love so that when one of us dies, that, that there's weeping. That's nice. Yeah. Do you know where it is? <laughs> okay, I'm sure you will. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and that's one of those questions. If somebody works like in a in a, a NICU with uh, uh, babies and stuff like that, they talk about failure to thrive. And sometimes you're not able to uh, assign a purpose. Why is this baby thriving and eating the same stuff, and this one is not thriving? And they don't really have an answer for that, do they? Okay. Yeah. Are you going to ask us what we should say at a funeral? <laughs> no. <laughs> what? No. Uh, yeah. I have, I know someone whose daughter died four days after the birth of her third child, leaving many of us. And people who came up to them, my good friend and said things like that. Oh, yeah. Absolutely ripped her to pieces. And I know people mean well. Oh, they do mean well. We're they awful. Need to concentrate on her. Yeah. Trying to, you know, make sense of this horrific. Uh huh. Because it was awful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think people mean well. You know, they're going to a better place. They were needed more. <laughs> yeah. She's got three left. I know. Uh, uh, I think I know we. I know what the doctrine is, and I believe it. But I don't think that's comforting the living. I think Ecclesiastes says something about it being a time to mourn, right? Uh, and so, Wendy, I think the last time that somebody told me that. That something passed away, something that I went, man, that really sucks. I'm so sorry. <laughs> right. That is hard. It is. That's got, how are you doing? How are you getting through this? Yeah, and give them a hug, right? I love you. Yeah, you can, right? We'll get through this. Okay. okay. So, so, so let me give you kind of a meta view of the, the, this. Is, so on a bigger, on a bigger thing, the, think about our, our shared history, right? Um, I found it interesting if you think about it that there comes a point in, in Nauvoo where uh, our prophet has been killed. We've lost our protections from the state and from the city about what would keep us safe so we don't get to have a militia. We have cities around us that want us gone or dead. Uh, and to a certain extent, they just had to say, well, we're, gonna, we're about to be kicked out of another city and we're going to have to go find another place to live. Man, that's, that's awful. That's horrible. 
And I'm not sure how much of it was the Lord and how much of it was Brigham Young who said, now we need to reframe this. This is awful. If this is just we're refugees kicked out of another city and they killed our prophet, man, that's just needless suffering. And now we're going to have to go rebuild somewhere else. But they reframed it to what? Who's looking for the promised land? Yeah, but the saints don't become saints. They turn them from saints into Israel. Now suddenly, instead of being uh, refugees, we are now the camp of Israel. And we are going where? To find, just find another place so we can live? Zion. Zion. We're going to we're finding our promised land okay and so now so out of this comes all the 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 songs of the of the whole narrative you know oh babylon oh babylon we bid thee farewell we're on our way where to the mountains of who ephraim to dwell in other words we aren't just unfortunate refugees we are israel and that, what, that makes Brigham Young who? Moses. Moses. Now we're going to crossing the wilderness. We're finding our way in the promised land. And there will be a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Because we are camp of Israel. Well, okay. It's one thing if you're, if you're refugees. If you are Israel recreating the Old Testament moment on your way to the promise. Well, that's okay. That's, it's still painful. But at least there's a purpose in this. We are finding a way. We're going to get out of wicked Babylon and on our way to the Ephraim where we're going to have a place to be saved and comfortable and rise up. And we're coming out of ugly Egypt. They can, if they want to have a civil war, let them do it. Brigham Young was like, yeah, it's their fault. <laughs> okay, we found our promised land. We're here. We're saved. Yeah. That's also, there's a big difference between going someplace that you were prophesied to go by the prophet who was martyred. Yes. And going, you don't know where because you just... Yeah. See, isn't it interesting? Think about what... Is there any of that prophetic purpose in the fact that when, when Far West falls and Joseph is incarcerated in liberty and now the saints have got to limp back across Missouri in the middle of the winter and, and land in Illinois kind of bedraggled and cold and frozen. Any divine purpose in that? No, there, there wasn't a narrative there. There is on the way out, now, now we're Israel. Perfect. Yeah. So do you think, though, um, just a question, do you think, though, that the, the narrative, I mean, obviously this narrative was clearly carried among the saints, right? Like was, oh, they live by the, yeah, this is what got us through. How else do you encourage an entire, you know, swath of people to, go, you know, to be willing to, like, go in these conditions and pioneer a trip? It's got to be a reason. But, but do you think that that narrative, though, was um, carried... Like this, so that's obviously what the saints are seeing, right? That's what the pioneers. That's what got them there, yeah. But is that what is that at the time? Is that what they're the message that they're sending also to these places that they're leaving? You know, because like you're saying, they're kicked out, right? They're not just like yeah. I mean, they're choosing to leave, obviously, but it's because they're being literally yeah forced out of these places. Yeah. So do we think is the is the idea then 
that like the leaders of the church at the time, right? Are they what kind of communication are they giving to the outside world? Are they saying, well, we're you know what? Screw you guys. We're pioneers. We're just going to head on to the next. But we are now we are now covenant Israel on our way to our promised land. I don't know how much that. That's a good question. How much they were actually saying that to people around them? Uh, I know that by their experience. Th think about when they did that in reverse, and we were going from from. Ohio out to Missouri and now we had this purpose we're not just moving the this the people to Missouri we this is but this was the Garden of Eden this is the promised land we're building the new Jerusalem and you have to covenant you got to make certain promises to be one of those to get an inheritance in here and oh, oh you're a Missourian uh, we're coming in big numbers this land's been promised so I think we had an experience of that working against us when we started to communicate to other people say we're this is a sacred people and they're coming and yeah you're gonna have to go because the city's actually gonna probably cover your land independence is ours we're gonna build a massive temple how big's the temple Woo, you ought to see how big the temple is hundreds of miles well I got a farm right here Pfft, sucks to be you <laughs> you know <laughs> And we're going to buy among ourselves, not from you. In other words, we didn't communicate really well when we had a purpose going out there. I think they were just on their way out of town. Uh, although at the same time, they were communicating with the government saying, we're leaving. If there's any way we can make some money. They said, well, we could use a battalion. Okay. Brigham Young says, that's fine. We'll, we'll do that as long as you pay us. That might get us to our promised land. Yeah. So Yeah. We will go out without planning the new crop in the spring. Yeah. Yeah. And then we got hornswoggled. We're leaving in the spring. We'll go in the spring of 1846. We're on our way. We're building wagons. We're on our way out. And then the word comes in January. I don't think they're going to wait. They're going to come attack us. It will be bad. And they're going to start killing people and everything. So that's why in the middle of February over a frozen river, they suddenly say, we got to go now. I mean, we got, we got horns. We got lied to. Anyway, I don't want to get that far into it. But I just need you to see the power of a narrative and the power of a narrative of what we, when you see what we're going through, now, now we have a purpose, we have a reason, and we have like values, and we have a storyline, and we're going to figure out where we sit in that story. Yeah. We also have Yeah, yeah, and so we needed an anthem. We needed a song. I need. I know. Come, come, ye saints. You know, no trials or labor, fear. We're on our way. Israel, Israel. God is calling. You know, and we just had this, and and to a certain extent, we lived off of that narrative for a long, long time. And our ability to start reaching out to the world and saying we need to include the world. We're we're we don't need to bunker up like we did when we thought when we were Israel hiding in the mountains. Okay. Um, now watch this narrative though. And so th this is really kind of a setup to. We just I just introduced you to the Book of Mosiah. This is what the Book of Mosiah is. Okay. Now. What I find fascinating about that, oh, 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 I want to throw this at you. Elder Holland from October Conference. I don't know if you heard this, but just let this percolate in when we start talking, when we're talking to people at funerals and things like that, or our hard times. 
Uh, I mentioned this in bishopric meeting yesterday, and the bishop was like, yes, yes, I, I hear this all the time. Okay. King Benjamin said, you will be childlike, submissive, meek, humble, and full of love. And the next line is, and willing to submit to all things that the Father seeth uh, to inflict upon you. Right? Look at what Elder Holland says on that. I think the only commentary needed for this verse might be regarding the line suggesting God inflicts trials and burdens on us. He, he's about to change the Book of Mormon a little bit. In English, the word inflict comes from the Latin and it has two meanings. One is to strike or dash against. The other is to beat down. But these definitions are not applicable to God and his angels. <laughs> just sit in for just a sec. Okay. They're not applicable to God or his angels. No. The proper definition of the word as King Benjamin used it. This is what prophets do, by the way. Prophets can take the scriptures of old and say this was what was in the heart of the prophet. And that therefore I can, I can update this. Okay. He's updating it. No, the proper definition of the word as King Benjamin used it is to allow something that must be born or suffered. Then he's going to nail this down. Not allowing. Now, allowing something is a different matter. God can and will do that if it's ultimately for our good. I'm going to say it again. God does not now nor will he ever do to you a destructive, malicious, unfair thing ever. Yay! And you go, yeah, but what about, <laughs> you know, okay? Because then you got to, again, we're still talking about the book of Messiah, okay? Um, oh. So, it is not in what Peter called the divine nature to even be able to do so. Because so often we want to draw a direct line to uh, I'm suffering because I failed to do this. Or God wanted to teach me a lesson. Or God's vengeance or God's punishment. Um, and, and as opposed to sometimes there are corrective measures and things that we might go through. But only if it's for our good. Sometimes, uh, sometimes I hear a lot in testimony meaning, well, I just had to learn that lesson. Well, there's a reason that Alma 41 says we're our own judges. <laughs> we're the ones judging us. And a lot of times the stuff that comes into our life is the unfair actions of other people or our own de decision making or whatever it is. So rather than God causing us to suffer, I think what he's saying is God suffers with us in our pain rather than creating the suffering. Does, does that make sense? Okay. So, hang that, hang that over here. We got, so now we've got the, the uh, narrative that we listen to and the idea that God doesn't create suffering unless, it's, and, unless there's some really divine purpose for it. But by and large, man. It, 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 mortality really stinks sometimes. Like Joseph of old. Yeah, like Joseph of old. Where sometimes there ends up being a purpose in it. Okay? Hold on to Joseph. We're going to talk about Joseph in a sec. All right, so let's go. So let's turn, for instance, to uh, Mosiah 7. 
because now we're going through Mormon's abridgment, and as we've talked about, he does a really funky thing in, in Messiah, okay? There's a lot of stories going on here. Does he go chronologically in order? No. Mormon is like messing with this thing. This is, this is like, uh, I'm going to start a story, and then I'm going to do a flashback to something else, and then flash forward over here, and, he's met, and, and you have to say, hmm. Yeah, and then he's going to throw Isaiah in just in case you miss something, right? Okay, so part of, part of what we're having to ask, why, this, why the story order is the order that he decides to do in Mosiah? How come the story is in the order that it is? Because we're going to go from uh, King Benjamin, and then we're going to hop over here to, they're going to send out Ammon, and he's going to talk to Limhi, and Limhi's going to tell you about Zenith. So then we're going to go backwards in time over to Zenith. We're going to go to Zenith to Noah, you know, and then... And then Abinadi, and then we're going to talk about Alma. So then we're going to put Alma over here. So then we're going to go back over here to what's going on with Limhi, and then we're going to try and get Alma and his stuff over here, get them off to Zarahemla. Then we're going to go back over here to Limhi, and we're going to grab him. And then wow, this is really hard, but he's going to make it. We're going to send him over here, and you go, <laughs> you know, there's this order going on. You go, why? It seems like he could have told it in one smooth chronological order, and he doesn't. Because he start, he jumps all the way ahead to Limhi and then goes backwards. Okay, why would he do that? Ah, good writers, good narrative tellers do this. I'm going to tell you ahead what you're going to run into, and then I'm going to show it to you. Does that make sense? Good writers, for those of you who love literature, good writers will frame something and then take you back. Uh, I remember when the movie Titanic came out. One of the questions was, will people go see Titanic? They know how this ends. <laughs> okay, so we know how the story ends, but we're going to go see how we got there. Well, Messiah is kind of that way. We know how it ends. Let's see how we got there and what elements go in there. So, so uh, in order to do that, let's, let's hop over to Messiah 7. So here's Ammon, you know, he's going out there. He, as, we, as we talked about, he finds Limhi. Uh, and when they find out that they're from Zarahemla, awesome, let's get everybody together. Um, and they're going to gather together, uh, and we're going to learn a couple of things about them really, really fast. And here comes the message. It's in verse 15. The story of all of this is going to be what? In yellow. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> We're in bondage. This is a bondage story. It's about bondage and deliverance. Now, when he talks about we are in bondage to the Lamanites, we're we have a bad tax. It's actually fifty percent tax rate. You know, it's like, you know. As it turns out, King Noah's was only 20%, so I guess that was better. But 
It's a bondage story. And, and who are we telling the bondage story about? Who is living the bondage story? Well, in this case, it's because who are they? Okay, look at 19. Therefore, lift up your heads and rejoice. Put your trust in God. Who is what God? The God of? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Who are these people? Are they New Testament or Old, Old Testament people? They're Old Testament people. What's their scriptures? The brass plates. What's their history? Back to Jerusalem. These are Old Testament people with an Old Testament narrative. If you're going to talk to Old Testament narrative people and you're in bondage, what are you referencing? What, what, are the, what narrative are they living? Moses. Moses. Egypt. And where are they? They're in bondage. Oh, we're in that story. Oh, okay. So let's now slide into the Moses Egypt bondage story. Oh, now we, now we know where we fit. Who are we? Oh, we're the, we're the people in bondage. Oh, cool. Now we know what's supposed to happen. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, that's why in the same way that the, I think the early Latter-day Saints slid into the camp of Israel narrative, it's like, oh, we know how this goes. We know what role we play. You know, it's like, it's like if, I, if I said uh, to you, okay, uh, this is a Star Wars story, uh, you're Luke Skywalker. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, now I know what my job is. I'm supposed to be doing this, uh, and you're Darth Vader. Oh, really? I got that? Why did, why did I get that one? I don't know. <laughs> it's the only one left. <laughs> you know, okay, now you know what you're supposed to do. You know, your voice is supposed to change and, you know, all this stuff. It's like we know what our jobs are once we know what the story is. Does that make sense? These are Old Testament people, and they're in bondage. How does this work? What are they looking for? Deliverance, right? Who's going to deliver them? Moses, under the direction of... God. This is how this works. Okay, so they're at the temple, and you go, okay, you know what? We're in bondage, 19. Uh, we're going to put our trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because we're of that tribe, right? We're there. That God who brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, caused they should walk to the Red Sea. Oh, yeah, I know. I know the wilderness is bad, and the Lamanites are pretty nasty, but hey, this is the God who brought them through the Red Sea. Ooh, it's doable. Cool. Okay, we, we might be able to do this. Fed them with manna, they might not perish. We didn't know what we'd eat in the wilderness on the way to Zarahemla. Okay, now, but they have an additional narrative. We're Israelites, and what else? And again, verse 20, that same God who's brought our fathers out of the land of Jerusalem and has kept and preserved our people even now. Uh, and, and why are we, where is this handbasket, and how did we get here? <laughs> Behold, where did our bondage come from? And they, because they have a, an understanding of where their bondage created them. This isn't just physical bondage, this is spiritual bondage as well. And how did we get here? Behold, it is because of our iniquities and abominations that he brought us into bondage. Ooh, what kind of iniquities? Well, you know, ooh, um, you're going to witness if, if we're going to how did we get here well there was Zenith and he was overzealous 
I, I mentioned, I mentioned uh, last time the, the statement from the Israelites that were in Babylon who had been carried away, you know, and, and they're saying, oh, well, our, our fathers ate sour grapes and our teeth are on edge. <laughs> you know, our, our fathers ate jalapenos and the children's teeth are burning. Other, our, our fathers made mistakes and it landed on us. And we're having to suffer the consequence. Okay. So, he, Zenith was a problem. Uh, and and lay, the, the king was a problem. He allowed Zenith in there for the sole purpose of doing what? Verse 22. What was his goal from the beginning? To put us in bondage. And we think Pharaoh might... Kind of like Pharaoh, you know, he let him come in and then another Pharaoh comes that doesn't know Joseph and then we end up in bondage. These wicked kings, so, because they were naive. Um, and we pay tribute, one half of our corn, it's awful. Now, how else did we end up in this predicament? 26. And again, we're telling a story that hasn't yet been told. But Mormon is framing this in a way so we're getting the we're getting the pre-story before we actually get into the story. So Zenith was overzealous, we're about to read about that, and then the what's and then the king steps in and he puts us in bondage. What's the next thing that they did wrong? They killed the prophet. Yeah. Look and twenty six, and a prophet of the Lord have they slain. Wait a minute, okay, hold, stop for a second. Your Old Testament people. Do you have a history of this? A history of people doing wickedly, armies trying to control and put you in bondage, and who comes to preach? Prophets, and what do you do? You kill them. This is what we do. So in other words, we're still inside the Israel narrative. We are Israelites. What we do is we kill prophets that try and tell us that we're living in iniquity. And it doesn't turn out well. And we end up in bondage. We, wait, we were reading that in the brass plates just the other day during our morning study. We were doing our come follow me and turns out this has happened before over and over and over. Bummer. Who did, who, yeah, who didn't know, who did Nephi think he was? Well, he looks back on Moses and says, well, wait a minute. When, when Moses and the children of Israel need to tell him, this is what happened. The Lord killed. Right. He's trying to tell them. But even Joseph had a narrative. Or, or even Nephi had a narrative, yeah, right? Nephi, Nephi, Nephi was Joseph. My, 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 my brothers tried to kill me in the wilderness, leave me for wild beasts. You know, and because I was the younger brother, and they were envious. It's a great little story. Well, yeah, but see, Nephi saw himself as somebody who could get rescued. Yeah. Right. And I can save my family in the process. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's easy if if we're Old Testament people, full of Old Testament stories. Let's figure out what story we're in, and then we know what our roles are. Okay? If you're Luke Skywalker, you know what you're supposed to do, right? Yeah, yeah. 
if you if you start, she's wondering who who Joseph would have seen. You know what? When you start reading these, this is why you have to read a little bit more in depth. See what they're referencing, because there's no mistake what Limhi is referencing. We are Old Testament people. We're the we're appealing to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're in bondage. Uh, we killed prophets, and now we have Ammon has showed up. Who's Ammon to us? Uh, it could be a Moses. May, he might lead us out of bondage. Cool. It's about to get better. Yeah. Part of what I'm thinking with this, I mean, you can really apply this narrative to any situation in the world that we live in now. In many ways, we feel like we're in bondage, even though we're not slave and free. We feel like we're in bondage because of the world around us and the people we come in contact with. The thing that gave me hope here is that they said, well, we killed the prophets and we were the ones. We owned that it. That was the first step of repentance to say, I did something wrong. Yeah. If they said, we just got captured by the Lamanites and we didn't do anything, well, then they're not ready to be saved yet. That, great point. Great point. And I think, and isn't that the whole idea of all of this, by the way, the whole Book of Mormon, is to say, Mormon saying, I'm going to present this to you. And then you're going to have to figure out what this means in your day. Because I'm going to give you a hint just a second where I think this is directly pointed at us. There's a little hint here that it means this wasn't applying to them, it's applying to us. So, great point. Okay. All right. So, here's where, so we, we got all this. What, what happened? Uh, and here's, here's the fascinating part. And it's going to be a problem. Uh, because this prophet said something really kind of crazy to an Old Testament group of people. Because Limhi is almost post-Old Testament because they saw what happened and they heard Limhi. But King Noah whew, is a straight-on Deuteronomist right out of the time of King Josiah. Uh, and it's all about the law. Uh, and, but look at what this crazy thing this prophet told them. Look at 27. And because he said unto them that... Christ was God, the Father of all things, and he should take upon him the image. He said that man was created in the image of God, and 28, and because he said this, they did put him to death, and many more things brought down the wrath upon them. Therefore, who wondereth why they were in bondage? That put them in bondage, and were the recipients of that, okay? Now, this is a departure. This makes Limhi a little bit more New Testament because if I'm talking to Old Testament people and they're talking about this person that's going to come and save them, what's his name? Messiah. 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 Okay? And he's going, we have this, we wrote down some of the stuff Abinadi said and he said his name was Christ. And Mashiach, Messiah of the Old Testament is going to come into and save Israel with, with sword and flame. And this prophet came and said he was going to take on the image of a man and live among us. Whoa. If you're a Deuteronomist, that's just flat out blasphemy. That's, new, that's not out of the Old Testament, at least not the way we read it. That's what Noah and his priests are going to really push. This is the reason they gave for killing Abinadi, by the way. Because he said God would come into the flesh. That's that's going to be their cover story. Okay. Okay, and this is kind of like a, when they had the Nicene Council, a big issue there was was Christ's spirit or body? Was God's spirit or body? Yeah. You know, 
That just seems similar. No, he, he said that, that, that's true. Because I actually thought about the Nicene Council when they were doing that. And they were trying to decide uh, the nature of God and, and really kind of the triune nature of God. How did that work? And Athanasius was there saying, no, I think they're separate, you know, and they're functioning together. And at one point, Christ was born. He created. God created him. And, and the, it was swung the other way. I can't remember who pushed that issue on the other side of that who said that is blasphemous he's always been God forever don't ever put Christ he was God incarnate they believe that the body was corrupt though, and there was no way it could be pure only yeah. spirit could be pure yeah he's saying that they believe that the, the body was corrupt and that was part of it God can't come into a corrupt body that, that's just that's part of the, the heresy of that moment what God Athanasius kicked out was the fact that God it would not come and inherit a, a body subject to blisters and fevers and sins and That's interesting though in the sweat. Book of Mormon and then here clear back in the Nicene Council. The issue of still the nature of God. It is. And it and it and that's why there's some elements of there that just say, Mormon is sending this to us, not just to them. Okay? It's just Okay. So Mosiah 7. So what we're going to do here, so, so he's, now as he framed the story, we've now, this is like the opening scene, and then the curtain's going to close, and then we're going to step way back a couple of decades, and then we're going to go back to, we're going to start with Zenith, and we're going to, and so I think you know the story of Zenith. I'm going to hop a little bit ahead uh, to uh, the coming of Abinadi. Because this is going to happen. So this is, this is Mosiah 11. Zenith is going to confer the kingdom on Noah, one of his sons. Therefore Noah began to reign in his stead, and he did not walk in the ways of his fathers. Now, these are, Abinadi has not yet come. So they are strictly Old Testament people. Now, they are... So I, I want to I jump, want to jump way ahead here, all the way down to eighteen. We really need to set this story up. Think Old Testament. Stay in the story. And it came to pass the Lamanites are coming on them, trying to destroy them. You know, they're they're there from time to time. Uh, Noah sent guards. He didn't do a great job about it. Uh, they come across. They start to drive the flocks out. They start to destroy. 18, it came to pass that King Noah sent his armies against them. <coughs> they were driven back. and They drove them back for a while. Therefore, they, they returned rejoicing in their spoil. And because of this great victory, they were lifted up in the pride of their hearts. They did boast in their own strength, saying that 50 could stand against the Lamanites. They did boast. They delight in blood and shedding of blood. And this because of the wicked. I mean, <laughs> Who's Noah at this moment? I mean, I don't know if he was born Noah, but like this new world is starting up. But who is it that's taking in the Old Testament the children of Israel and protecting them? Who is their protector? Moses. We're back to Moses. In a sense, in a sense, Noah would be seen as a Moses-like figure. That's why when he's enforcing the laws of Moses, that, that just that's a fit, right? Yeah. Is it 
In some ways, yeah, he would be the defender. See, I, I think that's, I think, he, yeah, there, I can see a lot of Saul in it as well. Absolutely. Uh, because watch how this story goes. Uh, yes, lady in the front. <laughs> I could also see it in, um, do you remember when Isaiah and Jerusalem um, was protected so many times that they didn't think it could ever be destroyed? Like under Hezekiah and, yeah. and all that, yeah? Yeah, it was right about that time period. And they're... They're thinking that they can't be conquered because they're so... Well, they can't be conquered. Why? What's the message of the Deuteronomists about, about being, keeping the city safe? Because they're obeying the law of Moses. If you keep the law of Moses, you cannot be conquered. Exactly. And that's so what Laman and Lemuel are trying to say. These, are, these guys are righteous. They're keeping the law of Moses. They can't lose. Right. That's why it's so important. If we're keeping the law of Moses, we are unconquerable. And whoever's going to do that, whether it's a King Saul type person or Moses, if you're going to enforce this, we are now safe. And we're going to kill anybody who's going to talk against this at all. Right? That's our invincibility. Right. Okay. Yeah. They, they, yeah, it was pretty good. It's like the Nephites and the people of Zenith had armor and swords, and the other guys had nothing but slings. Pointy sticks, yes. Yeah. It's, it's really yeah. yeah, yeah. But but now but now they're going to ascribe all of this victory that maybe Zenith started, all of this victory stuff is going to be on Noah's head. And, I, and I'll, I'll show you why they think that in, in just a second. But... Uh, so this is all about Noah, uh, and and we know back here up here to the top now, Noah is going to do all kinds of things. He's gonna he's gonna lay a tax of one fifth. Hey, they were charged, you know that's good deal, uh, 20% tax rate, <laughs> uh, so he can support himself. He puts down the priests in verse five, uh, and again I think we're pretty aware of all this stuff. Uh, seven, they become idolatrous. They're dece deceived by the vain and flattering words. Uh, and they're doing all of these kind of things that we know that King Noah did. Now, so in the middle of all of this then... Yeah, and now, now they've got, they got vineyards going and they become wine bibbers and they're drinking a lot. They're having a good time. Now, here's the other thing that he does. And, and really pin this in the back of your brain. Thirteen came to pass that he caused many great buildings to be born, built and the great tower on the land Shilom that had been, which had been the place of the resort when Mosiah was bringing the people out of the land in the first, the first time. We talked about that. Had been a resort for the children of Nephi. But he builds a large tower so that he could watch what's going on. Okay? Now. Isn't this the place of resort when Nephi left Laman and Lemuel? I think it's also that too. When Mosiah leaves, he finds the people of Zarahemla, so that's his place of resort. Okay, yeah, you're probably right on that. Okay, so, so now 18, here comes Noah, he's the protector. Uh, he's driving them back, and it's right at this moment, what does the Lord do? 
he sends Abinadi. So here comes the prophet. Okay? Now, what's his message? Go forth. Uh, woe unto the people I've seen their abominations. Except they repent, turn unto the Lord, I will deliver them into the hands of their enemies. And what? They're going to be brought into bondage. Oh, wait a minute. Now we're back to that story. Oh, no. Okay. They'll be brought into bondage. Uh, and they're going to know that the Lord's a jealous God. 23. And watch how often he keeps repeating this. And, and Mormon has got to be going through and pulling some of the language, things that were written, and just say, I need you guys to hear over and over and over. He was preaching that they were going to end up in bondage. We're in that story. Okay? They shall be brought into bondage. None shall deliver them except the Lord. Uh, they're going to be slow to hear the cries. I will suffer them to be smitten by their enemies. Neither will I deliver them out of their afflictions. Remember when it talked about how the Lord was a little slow to hear the cries of the Israelites? Okay. Um, now, the, the, this, is, this is awesome. Look at this. 27. When King Noah heard these words, what does he say? Who is Abinadi that I and my people should be judged of him? And who is the Lord? That I shall bring upon my people such great affliction. Who is he echoing? Brent, who's he echoing, you think? Yes. Yes. Yeah, hold on. So I'm going to pop up. I got, I got this link here. So let's go to Exodus 5.2. Moses is saying, let him go. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Okay, now, again, hard to know whether this is exactly what Noah said. Or Mormon wants us to hear, put these words in Noah's mouth. But look at the narrative. Look at the story. That at this point, Noah is being put in the position of Pharaoh. And what is Pharaoh doing to the children of Israel? Keeping them in bondage. So they think they're being saved, but they're really in bondage to Noah... Is it, a, is it a physical bondage? A little bit, I guess, the taxation. Spiritual. It's a spiritual bondage. They're in bondage of sin, sin. wickedness. Wow. So that's why I say I, it, it's subtle, but if you'll hear what Mormon is trying to get us to see, he's going to say, who is the Lord that shall bring upon my people such affliction? Uh, now, I command you to bring Abinadi hither that I may slay him. Why? Because here's, here's initially what he's going to say. Here's his problem. I haven't really hurt him. And this won't be the thing that they kill him for. But this is the thing that enables us to arrest him. What's he doing? He has said these things, 28, that he might stir up my people to anger one against another, to raise contentiousness among my people. Therefore, I will slay him. Okay, what's he accusing Abinadi of? Yes, an insurrection, right? Anybody ever been, anybody else through history ever been accused of insurrection and, and tearing things up? 
Paul in, in, in Thessalonica uh, and in, in uh, Ephesus where we just were, we're the site of the contentiousness because Paul's stirring stuff up and we can't sell our statues if Paul's being obnoxious. The Savior is, is accused of insurrection. Jeremiah is saying harmful things. What, how dare you do that? Why? Well, because he was telling them all the things that we know all of Right. When Joseph is in Carthage, and, and they're being accused of destroying the, the Nauvoo Expositor, they can get a, a writ of habeas corpus, which gets them out of jail, and then they can move the trial back to Nauvoo. Okay? But then they bring another charge against him insurrection and there's no bail for that so they have to be held in Carthage and it was the insurrection charge that kept him in Carthage long enough for them to come kill him okay so this is this is an ongoing thing dictators don't like to have people stirring things up uh, I, I just think it's interesting that when uh, when Rome went from uh, a republic where you had a triune Government and they would take care of things and they would build things and people would the Senate would discuss things and stuff like that. When they went from a republic to um, Caesar, Caesar conquered Rome, and then he's eliminating all of that and he's going to come in triumphantly. The Senate does what? The Senate rises up and stabs him, kills him, right? So then his successor, Octavius Augustus, right? What he's going to do is he's going to come in, he will conquer, now he's the emperor, but the first thing he does is he enshrines Julius Caesar as a god. So now we will start building temples, the imperial cult, to Julius Caesar. So we made the emperor a god. Why? Because he kept the peace. <laughs> Julius Caesar kept the peace. It was Pax Romana. You can go anywhere in the Roman world and nobody's going to fight against you. Why? Because we conquered all of them and we killed everybody that might be fighting against us. Pax Romana, the, the peace of the Roman world. Because we have an emperor who will rule with an iron hand and nobody dares go against Rome. Okay? And emperor... And, and, and so when... Like if you go to... Today, if you go to... Uh, Rome, and you get like a Roman uh, guide, and they'll say, yeah, that Mussolini, you know, yeah, he, he got in with Hitler, and that was bad, and, and all that kind of stuff, but what do we also know about Mussolini? The trains ran on time, yeah, and he built all of these wonderful things, he was a, you know, he was a pretty good governor, well, yeah, you know, fascists tend to be that way, <laughs> right? The, as long as you keep the peace, it's okay, and I get to stay in power and get rich. Democracy is messy. What is <laughs> yes. They think they do, but they have to give up too much to have everything what they consider acceptable. Democracy is messy, isn't it? And people have dissenting ideas, and it's just there's contentiousness, and people get mad. Go on Facebook. <laughs> you know? But isn't it interesting? So, so I just always, I always find it interesting that when you hear a, a leader in charge and they're talking about people, people be stirring stuff up. You know, I'm not liking all that. Well, that's a, it's a little point. So I'm trying to control things and I will do it with an iron fist to keep the peace. And that's what, that's what uh, Noah is saying. 
so I'll slay him. So they're blinded, and uh, he hardens his heart, and Abinadi steps out, of, steps out of town for a couple of years, right? Okay, now, the next line is, is really interesting if you kind of see it. I th one of the possibilities that I think we're being told here. Go to, go to chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12. Because if you just read it on the surface, it doesn't make any sense. After the space of two years, Abinadi comes among them in disguise. You know, that's how often we had prophets running around in disguise. But if it turns out he's in disguise, he's not real good at it. <laughs> he comes in disguise saying, Hey, Abina, the Lord said, Abinadi, go and prophesy. Oh, you're Abinadi. <laughs> you know, so you go, well, why is he wearing a disguise? But he's telling everybody who he is. That seems to defeat the whole purpose of the disguise, doesn't it? <laughs> that a little weird? So it seems like either who went out by night and observed all the doings of the people and then went and hid the captain of the rock to tell the Lord, tell them to go out. Yeah. Gathering information according to the Maybe way. talking to people surreptitiously. Now, now. Yeah. But it is interesting that when it's now it's time to preach, that he comes out in a disguise. And maybe he buys himself a couple of hours. But the first time he stands up somewhere, they're going to go, hey, I've been to die. Hold, hold on to the idea, because I'm, I'm going there. Okay, I think there's another reason possible. and I, There's no way to know. This is a little speculation, but there's no way to know. But if you see the narrative, you see the story, now it makes sense. Okay, Because so, it does work, right? I'm going to end up in court. <laughs> I know I'm on my way to court here. Okay, But look at what happens in court to an Old Testament people who believe in the law of Moses and are seeing... Uh, Noah with either King Saul or Mosiah protective things. This Get inside their story and Abinadi is going to show up in court. And by the way, isn't it hard? Cindy and I were just saying it's a little hard to picture King Noah without seeing the Arnold Freeberg painting. He looks like kind of a bearded uh, Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> you know, just sitting there and he's going to he's got his jaguars around him. Anyway. Uh, Freeberg was uh, he's left an indelible mark in our head <laughs> okay because he's going to he's even bringing the Old Testament right into their living room he's going to say a couple of things before they get him into court verse 3 and it shall come to pass that the life of King Noah shall be valued even as a garment in a hot furnace Is there an Old Testament story we're referencing here? What, who do we know ends up in a hot furnace with, and garments are specifically listed? Who is it? Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Daniel, right? Shadrach, Meshach, right? So if we're going to go back to Daniel 3, and I'm going to pop over here for just a second, they're going to be put in the fire. Um... 
27. And they all gathered together. They saw these men whose bodies had the fire had no power. Uh, neither were their coats changed. So, nor, nor even the smell of fire was on them. Okay? He's referencing Daniel. Now, back, back to Messiah. But here's the snag with that. The story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego happen after Lehi leaves Jerusalem. This would not have been included in the brass plates. It's as events that happen in Babylon after the brass plates are on their way to the promised land. Lehi's in the promised land. This is a story that happens after. It's the same reason that the Lord in 3rd Nephi has to give them Malachi. Put in Malachi 3 and 4 because this happened after you guys left. Okay? So could these people have had any idea what he's talking about unless there was a local story of people who got put in a furnace and I guess that's possible but if there's not who's this story focused on? Who would know about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace and the garments? Us. 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 This is directed guys at us. Now whether this was actually said back then I don't know. Could have. Could have said it not knowing really why he's saying it under inspiration, but this is for us. That's why we come back to this idea. When we talk about bondage in our day, this is a story for us. And I think it's a little clue. Okay. All right. So, so just so that they get the Moses connection and the law of Moses, look at what he's going to do. He's going to go with... Uh, you're going to be thrown in the front. Now he's going to start going, look at this. Came to pass. I will send them forth hail among them. It will smite them. They will be smitten with an east wind. An insect shall pester their land and devour their grain. What are we talking about? Did, did all that happen in... Yes, the plagues of Egypt. It just didn't happen in Nephi. But he's invoked... But they would know Exodus. He's evoking all of the Moses imagery and all of the Exodus imagery so that they stay in the story. Okay, cool. All right, so it's just, and I will utterly destroy them, uh, blah, blah, blah. And anyway, okay, now, their response, oh, king, you know, the, the priest, oh, what great evil has thou done? What great sins have thy sin people committed that we should be condemned of God or judged of man? We're guiltless. Uh, 15, we're Deuteronomous. We're strong. We shall not be put in bondage or taken captive by our enemies. Thou hast prospered in the land. Ah, that's a sign, by the way, that you're righteous. You're making lots of money. <laughs> okay. We could, and thou shalt also prosper in the future. Okay. Now, <laughs> here's where they put their foot in it. But I want you to... But more than just kind of laugh at, it, at this, I need you to see um, what it is, why the priests ask this question. Okay, so, what meaneth the words which are written, which have been taught by our fathers? They're going to they're question Abinadi, right? Quote Isaiah. How beautiful... I think it's Isaiah 54. I'm not mistaken. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bringeth good tidings and publisheth peace, and bringeth good tidings of good that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Okay? 
If you're, a, if you're a priest of Noah, why are you quoting this? Who's the him in the verse? If you're a priest of Noah. Noah. That's one possibility. That's what I believe. Because now put it now put Noah in there. Because if they're going to defend what Noah is doing, and they're going to defend themselves, and they're going to quote Isaiah, listen to what they're saying, I think. What but wait, 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 wait. Before you attack Noah and say he's going to burn up in a furnace and he's done bad things. It's right here in Isaiah, Abinadi. Look at this. Look at this. How beautiful upon the mountains. Think about Mount Shiloh. Okay. How beautiful on mountains are the feet of Noah that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. Pax Romana, things are safe. Okay. That bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, which publisheth the law of Moses. We're going to be saved by the law of Moses. Who saith unto God unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchman, oh wait a minute, he's got what now on that hill? Big old tower. So up on top, uh, the watchman of Noah shall lift up the voice, and the voice together they shall sing. That's the idea. Lord will bring Zion, uh, bring forth into joy, ye wasteland. In other words, I believe that part of what they're doing is they are applying all of this to Noah. As the watchman for Noah's people, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Just a thought here. You look at what's going on at Noah's time, and his goals and objectives were good. It was a methodology. I want to keep people safe. And... We have the same problem today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you look at the intention and how they're going to do it. Although, part of what he's going to go back here and say, his intention was really to get rich and drink a lot of wine and have lots and lots of wives. <laughs> but the stated purpose, as far as the priests were concerned, everybody else is, no, he's bringing peace. He's a good guy. We're safe. It's okay. The trains are running. <laughs> we know what time we know what time they're coming. Okay? So 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 here's what here's what Abinadi does. And this is where I think his genius is. Absolute genius. Either from Mormon's framing of it or Abinadi himself. Probably Abinadi himself. He says, if that's the story you're telling, fine. I'll be Luke Skywalker. I'm going to step into this story. You want that story? I'll tell that story. So what does he do? Oh, you're going here? Okay. I got, you. I got, I got that story. Okay, <laughs> let's go then. Okay. Uh, if you keep the law of Moses, why don't you keep it? So what's he going to start doing? Quoting the law of Moses. <laughs> okay? I'll quote it then. He's going to stand in front of them and start to quote back to them. Here's what Moses said. Okay? Uh, I am the Lord thy God, who bought the other child, no God before me, no graven image, and then, and then, Have you done all of this? This is like, I'm, I'll be Moses then, and I'm going to talk to you as Moses. Are you keeping my law? They're going to go, nah, nah. Get rid of this guy. He's, he's scum, okay? We don't want to hear this, okay? You want me to be Moses? I will be Moses. Let me be Moses. Okay. Verse 5. 
come to pass, Abinadi had spoken these words, the people of Noah durst not lay their hands upon him. As face shone with exceeding luster, and Mormon's going to even tell you who he is. What role he's now playing. He's going to step right into it. Even as Moses did while in the Mount of Sinai, while speaking with the Lord. You want Moses? I'll give you Moses. Here I am. By the way, when Moses comes down off the mount and his face is glowing, what does he do? He wears a veil. Now go back to the disguise that he was wearing when he came among the people. And he wasn't trying to disguise his name. Is it possible that that was an object lesson? This is Moses coming here with the story and he's got, and it's not so much a disguise as much as it is a veil. I don't know. I just think it's fascinating. If you're Moses, you want Moses? You want to quote Moses? I'll give you Moses. I will step into that role. And he's going to do that uh, with exceeding luster. Uh, and he speaks with power and authority. Uh, and I know we're running low on, on time here. Um, and then you're, going to, then you're probably going to kill me. But look at what he's now... This is going to be the... the uh, This is going to be the treasonous thing then that gets him killed in the eyes of the people. If we go to uh, chapter 15. And Abinadi said unto them, I would that ye should understand, this is what Limhi is trying to tell us, that God himself should come down among the children of men and redeem his people, for he dwelleth in flesh, he shall be called the Son of God. Uh, and I know, I'm not even going to get in today to, to the semantics of this one. It's a, it's a, I just listened to a scholar try and unwrap one to four <laughs> uh, about the one God and their one God and one eternal Father. I'm not even going there today. Um, be a fun discussion, but it will give us a headache. Um, five, thus the flesh becoming sub, uh, subject to the spirit uh, yieldeth not to temptation, but he suffered himself to be mocked, scourged, and cast out and disowned by his people. Uh, seven, even so he shall be led, crucified, and slain. Uh, and anyway, so he's describing the earthly ministry of Christ. Now, if you're an Old Testament people and you're expecting this from Moses, and you're waiting for a Messiah, the Messiah is supposed to come with the Lord of hosts, Lord of armies, not come down in flesh and... And ultimately, uh, this is the one that they will seize on to say, man, are you crazy? Um, and then he's going to go on to describe uh, the atonement. Who shall be his seed? Uh, whosoever shall hear the words of the prophets shall be his seed. Um, so, I want to kind of stop here. Okay, that's a lot. But I need you to see the narrative. I really do. I need you to see the story that they set up and that Abinadi as a master teacher says, I will use that narrative because I can teach from the Old Testament about Christ who's coming. I can do that. And I can actually, you want Moses? I can give you the power of Moses with the luster of Moses and I will quote to you the law of Moses. But I'm going to use the law of Moses to say it is a type and it's all pointing where? To Christ. It, the, the, law of the, Mo, the law of Moses was not supposed to save you. The law of Moses would lead you to the Savior. And then he runs with that. Yeah. This brings to mind the luster of recognition of the people. Yeah. 
And there's a, there's a narrative there that our, sometimes our prophets might glow. At times, Joseph, uh, I think it was Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner who talked about the fact that Joseph stood up and talked in, in Kirtland. She said his skin became translucent. She, he just glowed with a, a light that came from inside him. Okay, so anyway, that ability is there. So um, anyway. I, love, I guess my, my plea to all of us is that we have to look at the story. Look at the narrative that's being told. Once you're inside the narrative, now you know how, who, who's playing what. And the nice thing about Latter-day Saints, our, our, our history of our church is not our theology. Let me say that again. Uh, our, our history of our church is not our theology. Our theology is Christ crucified. It's all about Jesus. But one of the things our history does give us is a shared narrative, a shared story of people that overcame and went through things the best they knew how to do. And I think that's the valuable part of that. So we know how to play that role. So, Any final comments before we head out into the rain? Yeah. We're supposed to kill visionary men because our cities get destroyed when we let them take over. Yeah. And this is what's happening to a man that you see in the house. I think it's true, yeah. When, when you say the history of the church is not our theology, when you say the church, are you referring to the church in modern times? Yeah. So that makes sense to me, but maybe one thing I would just comment, an observation, is that a lot of the theology of our church was developed in a long a lot longer than historical that's right times. yeah it is and that and that's why but when we but when we try to set up if our history of our if our theology and maybe this is really a discussion for another time but if our if our theology is dependent on our history and prophets are supposed to be completely perfect and never make mistakes we set ourselves up for not allowing them to be mortal and, and say dumb things from time to time, you know. And, and so having to kind of tease that out and say, we need to understand that prophets are inspired people doing the best they can. And sometimes they make mistakes. That's okay. The thing keeps rolling on because it's about Jesus. It's not about, it's not about the prophets, which sometimes sounds a little blasphemous, I know. But we have to switch that. But anyway. Uh, I, I bury my testimony. Great story. Uh, go back and read it, but look at it maybe through little, little different eyes, and uh, and uh, we'll take it from there. And I, I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful today for the wonderful lesson that has been given to us, which will help us better understand the Book of Mormon.